Hi there, welcome to Western Water 101, where we talk about the history, future, and issues of water in the Western US. I'm Sarah Porterfield, Water Policy Associate for Trout Unlimited. I've lived all over the West, from growing up in California to college in the Pacific Northwest, to working as a raft guide in Utah, and now living in Boulder, Colorado, where I work connecting federal policies and programs and on-the-ground projects with TU. And I'm Brennan Sang. I was born and raised in Michigan. Um, somewhere in there, I spent almost a decade in Montana. And like a lot of Easterners who headed west, I was struck by how different our relationship to water was in Michigan compared to the high desert Yellowstone country. As digital director here at Trout Unlimited, I read a lot about water in the west and our efforts out there. But, you know, I guess I can change this a little bit. Uh, you know, in the, the original intro, as I say, I don't have the historical, political, or scientific background to really grok all of the issues. and. While I wouldn't say I'm really, I've got my head around all the issues, I'm, I feel like I'm starting to get a, you know, have a little bit of a better, um, a better foundation underneath me after all of these conversations. Uh, we had planned this out as a six-part series, with this sixth one being kind of a wrap-up, talking about current states and questions. And we we asked for questions throughout the series, and, uh, you know, even though there were, uh, you know, several thousand of you who listened to the podcast, um, none of you... Uh, only well, no, that's not true. One of you decided it was uh, that you had a question to ask, which I, I personally take as a uh, testament to what a great job we've done, because that must mean there's no, we left no room for question, I guess. Yeah, uh, must be. Everyone's uh, ready for Western Water Two Hundred One. Right, that's right. Yep, we, we <laughs> just have to get the exam out to them. Um, uh huh. But yeah, no. Uh, so we're gonna talk today. Uh, we're gonna answer that that singular question that we were asked, and uh, we're also gonna talk today about the shape of the hydrology in the in the West for this this season has kind of shaped up. It's not looking so hot, or very hot. Yeah, actually, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> too hot. In right. fact, <laughs> yeah. So, um, you know, there's been a lot. There's been a lot of talk in the news about uh, shortage declarations, especially in the Colorado River. Again, while while I feel like I'm getting the historical perspective and you know are the ideas of what we what we can do to kind of mitigate some of this stuff, um, we're starting to get into into legal stuff and we're starting to get into what's actually uh, sort of on the ground, um, not from a conservation lens, but just from just kind of a daily life lens. Um, so yeah, I was hoping we could, uh, you know, you being out in that area, I was hoping you could give us uh, some insight into uh, what all of this means. Yeah, so let's start with the big picture and talk about drought in the whole Western United States, and then we'll do a deep dive into the Colorado River Basin. Yeah. And yeah, I'm sitting here in Boulder, Colorado. It is um, almost 90 degrees at 10 a.m. Our high right today is supposed to be 97, according to my watch. Um, and it's been this way for, you know, almost a week. It's this whole, the heat wave that's hitting the whole Western United States. And where yeah. I'm on the front range, we're actually, you know, doing relatively okay. We're, we're technically out of drought here. Mm -hmm. If you look at the drought monitor map, which is in our post store at um, the, if you Google drought monitor, it'll come up for the West, for the entire US. So here on the, on Colorado's front range, it looks like we're doing relatively okay. But if you look at the West as a whole, that's a little bit different, a very different picture. Um, the According to the drought monitor data, um, 97.6% of the West is in some level of drought. 
almost 100% of the West is in some level of drought. And that doesn't, the way that the drought monitor defines regions, the West doesn't include Wyoming or Colorado. They're actually part of the high plains. So that would Mm. change the statistics a little bit. But still, you know, if you look at this map, there is just a dark red blob in the middle of it. And then, you know, the worst, worst category of drought, exceptional drought. And then the rest of the West is some level of orange to, you know, yellow uh, with very little drought free areas. Um, Yeah. And it's over a quarter of 27% of the West is in D4, that most severe category of exceptional drought. So it's pretty dry out here. (laughs) Yeah. It looks like if you look at, uh, you know, look from West of the Oklahoma panhandle, like we've talked about, there's barely again we're looking at this map we'll we'll make sure we put it in notes um mm-hmm. there's barely anything that is white that's in this you know out, outside of drought it's uh regardless of what the um what definition of west we're using here things are not looking uh, particularly wet out there no and you know this is something that we're as you mentioned brennan we're living every day out here you know i just um, got on a plane for the first time in more than a year last weekend and flew out to california uh Mm -hmm. and then drove from the bay area to uh southern california and you know both flights on either end and the drive the whole region you can just see it is parched you know there's flying over to Oakland and looking out the window, I was on the north side of the plane. You know, you could see a couple fires burning in Utah, or at least one, and I think a second one. And then flying back from Southern California, you could see the Pack Creek fire burning just east of Moab that was started by an unattended campfire, right? And I worked in Moab for a long time, and I don't, I maybe recall one fire in that area. Um, and this one is is just, you know, consuming uh, the LaSalle Mountains just east of Moab. And there's a couple fires burning in Arizona. Um, and we're getting the smoke here in, in Boulder. We've got really bad air quality. Going for a run yesterday was hot and hard to breathe. So we're feeling it out here. Yeah. And, you know, even I, I know we're, we're talking about the West, but boy, um, even where I am up in Michigan, you know, we've had several red flag warnings. Um, already this year. And I mean, you know, we might get one of those like late August, early September, you know, might, might have a day or two where we're, we're watching for, for that. But, uh, you know, maybe a little bit, bit, maybe a longer period here and there, but, but boy, I don't think I've ever, I don't ever recall having to be careful, um, in June. Yeah. Yeah. This is, this is a, you know, a real issue, um, here in the West. And, and as we've talked about, this is part of a larger trend, right. Of increasing aridification, uh, caused by climate change, right. It's not just, um, uh, this one year, it's been 20 something years of this kind of, uh, increasing drought, right. The last time that we saw hydrology this bad was in, I think it was 2001 or 2002 mm-hmm. um and it's we're almost as bad this year i think in some places we're a little bit worse some places we're a little bit better but you know up to 2002 or the early 2000s we didn't have the 20 years of drought already leading up to that point that right. we do now right reservoirs were full then um they're not right now flying over lake powell uh the other day you know you can see that bathtub ring um yeah. where from the high water mark down to where we are now and that reservoir is only 34 point seven eight percent full i think as of yesterday um and lake mead similar what do they tend to keep that at you know it varies um but i think Mm -hmm. ideally uh, you know in an ideal world probably at least three quarters full this time of year because if this were you know a quote-unquote normal year which 
I don't even know what normal is anymore, but if we had, right. you know, um, an abundant water supply, let's put it that way. This time of year, I think uh, the reservoirs, the big reservoirs would have been drawn down somewhat to make room for, um, you know, water use right. over the winter would have would have drawn them down, but they would have been a cushion to allow for the snowpack to melt, to fill up the reservoirs, et cetera, you know, as that happens. Um, you know, that almost happened in 1983, where there was a big snowpack in the spring and then there was a rain on snow event. So the mm. snow in May um, in the Colorado River Basin up high in the mountains melted really fast right. and like Powell wasn't ready for it. There wasn't enough space in there to allow mm. for that runoff to come in. Um, and the spillways, um, there was uh, cavitation damage to spillways, so they couldn't use those to pass water around the dam. So they're putting plywood boards up so the dam Jeez. didn't overtop and fail. Yeah. Um, if you want to read a great book about that, I highly recommend Kevin Fedarko's The Emerald Mile, uh -huh. uh, which looks at the, not only the, you know, the hydrology and the engineering of Lake Powell, but also, um, talks about how, uh, some boaters in the Grand Canyon used those high flows to mm -hmm. set what was then the speed record for a run through the Grand Canyon. Oh, nice. Fantastic book. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that sounds, sounds fun. Kind of, you know, lemonade from lemons sort of thing. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so really low and, and the snowpack this year wasn't fantastic, right? Yeah, you know, snowpack, I think, I don't have the exact numbers in front of me, but I think for the, um, we're going to talk specifically about the Colorado River Basin, yeah. um, probably for the rest of or most of the rest of the podcast, um, mm -hmm. as an example of this drought and um, the legal mechanisms surrounding um, uh, water conservation, water supply, etc. Uh, but for the winter, I think the upper basin, where all the mountains are, right, where all the snowpack um, and the water supply comes from, or the vast majority of it in the basin, I want to say it was like 70 to 80% of normal. Okay. So not yeah. terrible, right? But the real issue has been that for the last couple years, the Colorado River Basin, the West in general, hasn't gotten the normal summer monsoon rain mm. showers. Mm -hmm. You know, so usually in Colorado, you can like set your watch by it, right? Two o'clock in the afternoon, you're going to have a thunderstorm and rain. It's going to break the heat. You're going to get some precipitation, right. et cetera. We didn't have those the last two years. It oh, you know would kind of cloud up, and then maybe we'd get a couple drops of rain here on the front range, but there wasn't a real monsoon season. So That's the soils, all the fuels, totally dried out. And so right. what's happening now as the snowpack melts, or probably has already happened since I think most of the snowpack is gone at this point by you know mid June already, um, is that those soils are so dry that they're just acting like a sponge and they're soaking up all that water. Right. Uh, so that means runoff is much lower than you would expect, uh, given, you know, the snowpack that we saw. Right. Cause it's not making it to this, to the streams. It's, it's yeah. Sponging up before it gets there. Wow. Yeah. And so that means that, you know, despite this higher than average or 70 ish to 80 ish percent of normal snowpack, I think runoff into Lake Powell this year is now forecast at something like 26% of normal. Oh, wow. Yeah, so pretty, pretty low. Um, and they're expecting Powell to fall another, I want to say it's like 45 feet uh, by the end of the summer. Wow, that's, that's a lot. <laughs> <laughs> it's a lot. Yeah. Like, and I, you know, I've got to put my, you know, my try, try and frame what you're saying and in, in what I understand. And, you know, our Lake Michigan went down, it was up very, very high last year. Uh, but it went down, I want to, I want to say a little bit over a foot, maybe maybe a little bit more. Yeah, maybe a little bit more than that. And 
just the difference that that has made in like the lake shore alone is amazing. Like there's actually, you know, sand and stuff, but to, for a body of water to go down 45 feet is, um, that's very difficult for me to imagine already, especially these reservoirs that are already so low. Yeah. And it's, you know, I was, um, some friends and I are planning a river trip maybe for September on Cataract Canyon on the Colorado uh-huh. river. We're planning it. I don't know if there's going to be enough water to go boating. Mm-hmm. It might be a hiking trip instead. Um, but we were discussing, you know, where we could take our boats out at the end and, uh, height boat ramp is, is, um, uh, a marina or was a marina um, on Lake Powell. And now I saw a picture of it yesterday. It looks like it's probably, I don't know, a half mile, mile walk from the boat ramp to the river. Oh and it's a river flowing there, right? There's right. there's current. It looks like a river. Um, whereas it uh, Lake Powell used to back up to the bottom of the Big Drop Rapids, 186 okay. miles above uh, Glen Canyon Dam, which forms mm-hmm. Lake Powell. And I don't know where the current ends at this point, but, you know, it's miles downstream and there's all sorts of new rapids that are not new, but rapids that existed before the lake filled coming back out uh, below the big drops in Cataract Canyon. That uh, Again, kind of uh, making lemonade with that. That's got to be kind of excited, exciting for folks who like to run rapids, right? To be able to run something that no one's run for a, a long time. Yeah, I have a friend in Moab, um, Mike Dehoff, he runs the Returning Rapids Project, if anyone's Mm -hmm. interested in checking this out. And he runs Cataract Canyon, you know, a bunch. And he goes down and does repeat photography of these emerging rapids uh, and compares them to old photos. And so he's tracked the reemergence of these rapids that are coming out, um, which is pretty cool to see that change over time. Yeah, I'm trying trying to get my head around how I feel about that. I love the idea of getting to see those rapids again. But I I think that, you know, the, the difficulty that the conditions that allow for that might might outweigh, you know, the my my love of, of seeing those long lost rapids. But um so there's not much water right now, uh, and the water that was there in snowpack is not making it into the streams in the rates that it that it usually does. So what does that mean to the people who who live there, who work there, who, uh, you know, rely on this water for their daily life and, you know, their agricultural or, you know, their recreational, you know, all these voices we've been talking about uh, over this series. Yeah, that's a great question. And to understand it, we're going to have to go, no surprise, back in history yeah. uh, to talk about the legal mechanisms that govern Colorado River use today. Yeah. Um, and some of you, especially if you're in Colorado or live in the Colorado River Basin, you might have heard that the lower basin is facing what's a very likely shortage declaration. Uh, for the lower basin for the first time. Um, And that has to do with these legal mechanisms. So before we get to what exactly that shortage declaration means and what it means for today, let's go back, get in our time machine, like a hundred years, almost exactly a hundred years actually, um, to the first kind of whole basin legal governing document. And that's the Colorado River Compact um, that was negotiated and agreed on in 1922. Okay. So next year will be the 100th uh, anniversary of the Colorado River Compact in November of uh, uh, 2022. Um, yes. And so the Colorado River Compact, right? So the Colorado River, it encompasses um, seven states and two countries. Right. So the states are Wyoming, Utah, Colorado, New Mexico, Nevada, California, and Arizona, and Mexico. Nice. 
as okay. a second country. Um, and of course, these are political designations that have been overlain on this landscape that's been occupied and, you know, uh, that indigenous people have lived in for since time immemorial. But these right. are the, the current political boundaries that we're working with for okay. this, yeah. um, this agreement. And what the Colorado River Compact did in sort of the maybe simplest terms is it um, split the Colorado River Basin within the United States into two basins. So there's the upper basin, which okay. is Utah, Wyoming, Colorado, and New Mexico, sort of the headwater states, right? Mm -hmm. These states with mountains and snowpack that feed the Colorado River Basin. Uh, and um, that's the upper basin. And then the lower basin, which is California, Nevada, and Arizona. Okay. And uh, the states came to the table to negotiate this because we've talked about prior appropriation, right? Right. Um, okay, quiz time. What's prior appropriation, Brendan? <laughs> prior appropriation is uh, the system of water rights management that that we use in the West. That is, uh, you could also call it first in time, first in line. So uh, you get there, you make your claim, and um, people can make claims further on, but those claims are sort of contingent on you getting yours. So the later your claim, the less likely your claim is to be uh, filled in times of shortages. Exactly. Yeah. So the other states, um, you pass Western Water one. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so the states in the Colorado River Basin at the beginning of the 20th century, um, if you could, if you had to hazard a guess, which state do you think was growing the fastest? out of those seven. Oh, uh, California, I think, with, without a doubt, right? Yeah, exactly. So California is growing the fastest at that point. Uh, and they're the most tied kind of with Arizona um, and, and Mexico. But of the states, California is the most or tied for the most downstream of right. the uh, basin states, right? Mm -hmm. So the upper basin states uh, were worried that California was going to, by virtue of its faster growth, was going to be able to uh, lay claim to a lot of water, right? That okay. they would be able to be that first in time, first in right, and therefore um, lay claim to the most amount of water and let the leave the mm. upper basins with little to, to no water. Yeah. So, they came I mean, together, these states came together in Santa Fe, um, or just outside of Santa Fe, in November of 20, or 1922, not 2022, 1922. Mm -hmm. um, and they were led in their negotiations or, or by um, Herbert Hoover, who was then the Secretary of Commerce, right? Because it's an interstate mm -hmm. issue, so it was yeah. uh, under the Commerce Department. Um, and they sat down and figured out there's, you know, many histories that you could read about the actual proceedings of the Colorado River Compact. Right. Uh, but some of the big decisions to come out of that was the split into upper and lower basin. Okay. Um, and that those two basins would each get seven and a half million acre feet of water per year. So kind of split it down the middle ish ish yeah you know and uh, my friend john fleck and um and his uh uh partner eric coon business partner eric coon or writing partner um they wrote a book recently called science be damned that looks mm -hmm. at how uh science has been um used in the basin throughout its history it's you know past hundred or so years of history um to often go with the rosiest view of how much water is available, mm. right? Yeah. So the Colorado River Compact assumes that there will be at least 15 million acre feet, right? Seven and a half for upper, seven and a half for lower, 
some amount for Mexico. It wasn't decided in um, the in the Colorado River Compact how much Mexico would get. That didn't come until later. Um, okay. And uh, so that assumes, you know, uh, like probably 17 to 18 million acre foot river, right? That mm -hmm. everyone would get their piece of the pie and there's probably a little bit left over. Right. And from John and Eric's research, uh, we know that that was the um, rosiest projection of how much water there was, right? Right. There was plenty of evidence to say that we didn't have an 18 million acre foot river even then, uh, which was a fairly wet period of time in the hmm. early 20th century. Um, but, you know, based on stream flow measurements and, and other studies, there were quite a number of folks who knew that that was a, uh, not quite a realistic outlook. Right. Um, but... Uh, that was the projection that they went with um, hmm. and divided this, you know, this system up between the upper and the lower basin. I, I can see the he sort of human touch on that, right? This, uh, mm -hmm. you want to look at look for the best possible scenario while you're trying to figure out a way to make things all work together, right? Um, mm -hmm. It's way easier to get people excited about, you know, a positive scenario than it is to, to get excited about a worst case scenario, right? Um, mm -hmm. And I'm guessing, again, you know, that there's probably some, that, that these relationships were at least somewhat adversarial. Each of these states wanted to make sure that they had what they needed or what they felt like they needed. So um, making those estimates for what you, what you think, making them higher probably helped ease a little bit of that contention, you know, where you're, you know, if you, you were saying instead of what a 18 million acre feet, you were talking about a 12 million or a 10 million acre feet, then those numbers are a lot smaller and you, you start to trip over, uh, yeah, you start, you start to trip over the agreements that you'd have otherwise. Yeah. And, you know, it still was, uh, certainly contentious, right? The, the compact was negotiated in 1922, but wasn't actually ratified until 1928. Um, Arizona was the holdout. They didn't think they were getting a good enough deal. Um, and so instead of having all seven states need to sign on to it in 1928, when Congress passed the Boulder Canyon Project Act, it said, oh, we can only have six states sign on. That's okay. And Arizona never actually really? <laughs> that time signed. anyway signed on to it. So, but it became, uh, you know, the law of the land with the 1928 Boulder Canyon Project Act, which is the um, authorizing legislation for what we now call Hoover Dam. Okay. So that first really big yeah. infrastructure project in the basin. Uh, so did did Arizona ever sign or did they just kind of walk away and, and take their 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 toys? Yeah, there's a Supreme Court case in 19, I think it was 1963, Arizona v. California, that kind of mm -hmm. hammered out a lot of the details that weren't decided or, you know, fully decided in the Colorado River Compact. Okay. Um, and that's part of, so we we have the Colorado River Compact as sort of the first um you know, legislative binding agreements in the Colorado River Basin in the U.S. Um, right. And the, you know, the Boulder Canyon Project Act, the Arizona v. California decision, they're all part of what's called the law of the river, okay. which is this body of legal mm. uh, of laws of Supreme Court decisions, et cetera, that has been built on since 1922 uh, that governs the Colorado River. I love that. I think that's uh, the law of the river would have what a what a great body of work i don't yeah i, I think that's that's fantastic and of course I, uh, in in such an arid place uh you'd have to have some serious guidelines around what to do with this with this significant amount of water um mm -hmm. but the, but that name pleases me it feels kind of uh 
kind of Tolkien-ish almost, you know. Yeah, you've yeah. got uh, the law of the river here. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Yeah. One, one law to rule them all, right? Exactly. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so 1922 is the start of, of this law of the river, right? The, the compact is the foundation for it. Um, and there's a whole, you know, range of things that fall under the law of the river, including a 1944 treaty with Mexico that lays out how much water Mexico does get. It's a million mm-hmm. and a half acre feet. Um, you know, so that puts the the allocations for the river at 16 and a half million acre feet. Right. Um, it includes the Arizona v. California decision. It includes um, all the way up to, you know, we're, we're still building on this law of the river. Um, and the, one of the most recent, um, pieces of that are what is called the interim guidelines that were decided in 2007. Okay. And those are, as we've talked about throughout this series, those are an example of this increased collaboration, um, over water in the West, right? Mm -hmm. Um, those were, uh, decided in 2000 or, you know, signed into law in 2007, um, but they were in response to that really bad hydrology of the early 21st century, 2001, 2002, when we saw, you know, reservoirs like Lake Powell, Lake Mead were, you know, full or close to full at the beginning of the millennium. Uh, and mm-hmm. with this drought, we really saw reservoir levels tank uh, right. in those first few years of the 21st century. So there's a recognition amongst the basin states that we had to do something about this, right? That there mm-hmm. needed to be uh, a way to change reservoir operations to provide for water conservation in order to prop up these reservoir levels. Yeah, and so so during that time, just to, to step back to the the acre feet that they're giving. So we're talking about sixteen and a half million acre feet that are uh, accounted for. Were we hitting that sixteen? I mean, was it a sixteen and a half million acre foot river at that point? That's a good question. I'd have to look at the exact flows, but I think that, you know, for what we're calling the millennium drought, which is yeah. about 2000, starting in about 2000, I want to say the average is about a 12 million acre foot oh. river. Mm-hmm. So vastly different. I think this year, I might have this number wrong, but I think this year we're thinking it's going to be about an 8 million acre foot river with this oh, drought. Oh, geez. Uh, so that just covers one of the basins and some of Mexico. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, exactly. Yeah, right. and so these big reservoirs like Lake Powell, like Lake Mead, Lake Powell's in the upper basin, Lake Mead is in the lower basin. Um, there's other, obviously, additional reservoirs. I think there's something like 90 plus reservoirs in the basin. Um, mm-hmm. For the entirety of the basin, the Colorado River Basin, we have the capacity to store four years of flow. There's about 60 oh. million acre foot storage capacity wow. in the basin, right? Okay. Um, but as we've seen with Lake Mead and Lake Powell, we're in the like 30-ish percentage full uh, for those big reservoirs. I don't know what the I, what the um, storage we have now for the whole basin is. My right. guess is it's in the 30 to 40th okay. percentile range. Um, wow. So these, you know, even when reservoirs are designed like a savings account, right? Mm-hmm. You put water or money in there when you have it so you can draw on it in times that you need it. But with this millennium drought, we've been drawing from our savings account for a long time. And, you know, an over-allocated river, there's more um, paper water. There's more water rights on paper than there is actual wet water in the basin. Right. Sounds dire. It's talking through it like kind of a sinking and sinking and sinking <laughs> feeling like, oh, and it's, oh, and that too. Um, so do we, I mean, it, it sounds like this This is a new situation, right? This isn't, we've not really been in this position but 
in the past hundred years since the the compact was formed, and I'm guessing that there's put it's put some stress on on the system and the, and the agreements and and the the law of the river. What um, what are we doing to handle that? Yeah. So the interim guidelines were the first step, and mm-hmm. those those um, you know reservoir operation agreements that were signed in 2007 to address uh, these the the low bad dry hydrology, however we want to uh, call it. Um, and but it was pretty quickly realized that those uh, actions didn't go far enough. Mm-hmm. So there's an addendum to those interim guidelines uh, called the Drought Contingency Plan. Uh, we talked about this in the second um, article in this series. I don't remember if we talked about it on the podcast. Mm-hmm. But the Drought Contingency Plan is an effort to take the interim guidelines further. Okay. So what both of these agreements do is set reservoir operations based on the elevation of Lake Mead and Lake Powell, these two uh, biggest buckets in, of okay. you know, storage buckets in the system. And the drought contingency plan takes those, uh, those um, cuts those uh, water conservation measures further than okay. the interim guidelines do. So in the Colorado River or Colorado River Compact in 1922, uh, it's written in there that the upper basin has an obligation to deliver 75 million acre feet averaged over 10 years, uh, running average of 75 million acre feet to the lower basin, right? The upper basin mm-hmm. has to uh, fulfill this compact obligation to the lower basin. Right. So what like Powell does is acts as our storage bucket to deliver that water to the lower basin. Yeah. There aren't a lot of straws that come out of like Powell just to page Arizona really. Okay. Um, so it's basically this this savings account so that we in the upper basin can meet our obligations to the lower basin to deliver that water to them. Yeah, I, I think that uh, your your savings account thing makes makes perfect sense there. And now, but now we're uh, you know uh, to, to to stretch the metaphor to the the point of breaking. Now we've been unemployed for a while, and our savings accounts are starting to look pretty grim too. And yep. But we've still got bills to pay. Um, so yeah, it seems like now it's uh, boy, I, I can't believe how how far I'm stretching this metaphor. But it, <laughs> it seems like now we've got to start uh, maybe start uh, coming up with some payment plans. Yeah. So what what the interim guidelines and then the DCP do is um, set release uh, uh, or delivery. Um, amounts or allocations based on these reservoir elevations. And so what's been in the news lately is the shortage declaration for the lower basin, um, that the first tier of shortages kick in uh, at elevation 1,075 feet, elevation 1075 Mm -hmm. in Lake Mead. And uh, so with the drought contingency plan, there are, there's a, a, set of agreements that fall under this, you know, one plan, the DCP, uh, the lower basin, there's a lower basin DCP and an upper basin DCP. Okay. And the lower basin sets those, uh, those cuts to the, the lower basin states in their agreement. So okay. under the DCP, when Lake Mead is projected to hit elevation 1075 on January 1st, mm-hmm. according to the august 24 month study so (laughs) this is this gets way in the weeds here but Mm -hmm. the bureau of reclamation every month puts out a 24 month forecast for the colorado river basin that forecasts you know what should the runoff look like what should inflows into reservoirs look like what and probably most importantly at least for the uh, purposes of this discussion and for reservoir operations uh 
what will the reservoir elevations be at the beginning of each month? Okay. So reservoir operations uh, for Lake Mead are on the calendar year. And what tier Lake Mead will operate in per the DCP depends on what elevation Lake Mead will be at on January 1 as predicted by the August 24 month forecast. Okay. So all of us water nerds on like August, I don't know when the forecast comes out, maybe like 10th to 15th, uh -huh. we're going to be anxiously watching that because it's going to determine in a legally binding way what tier Lake Mead will operate under. Right. Now, the big deal with the April 24 month study this year was that for the first time it predicted that Lake Mead would be below elevation 1075 on January 1st. Okay. So that sets up that if things don't get better, it, it, it's likely that the August one would predict the same, right? Yeah. And those okay. projections, those forecasts are not getting better. They're actually getting worse every month. Okay. So now we have the May and the June one, and they're both predicting that Lake Mead will certainly be, uh, or almost certainly be below 1075 on January 1. So... We've still got the July one, you know, we've got mm -hmm. about two months until the August forecast comes out, but I don't know if anyone's really expecting that, you know, we're going to have any change to that, that there's any change that it'll be above 1075 by January 1st for Lake Mead. Now, have we ever hit 1075 before? Not in a, not at a time when it's, uh, you know, legally binding and triggers. Okay. I think maybe we've dipped below 1075 a few years ago, you know, but in like, the end of summer and it's come back up, okay. uh, but not in a legally binding way. No. Right. So this is a big deal because it means that um, Arizona is going to need to cut its water use uh, quite significantly. And this is not a surprise to anyone in the basin, right? right? We all knew that this day was probably going to come at some point. Um, and it's the reason that the interim guidelines, the reason that the DCP exists. Uh, one Arizona water manager recently called it planned pain, right? Like it's going to hurt. It's going to hurt for some water users, particularly, right. um, you know, farmers in central Arizona, I think are going to be the first that are affected. Uh, yeah. But this is not something that we didn't see coming, right? Yeah. So... I guess there's a that's a bit of a silver lining there in that, you know, um, at least for the past couple of decades, people have known that this was likely or a at the very least a possibility. So um, so what sort of changes happen if we do hit that that trigger point? What what where do we where do we go from there? Yeah, so there's a few different um, tiers below this tier one. Um... What the drought contingency plans did that were passed in 2019 is move up the, um, it built on the foundation of the interim guidelines okay. and it made cuts come, cuts to water use, water supply come earlier and at a higher amount. Okay. So for example, um, and we can link to this document in the show notes, maybe, um, in 2007, uh, Arizona and Nevada um, bore the brunt of these cuts, right? Um, uh -huh. California never actually took any cuts in hmm. the 2007 interim guidelines. Um, and for the 2007 guidelines, there were no cuts to water use if uh, Lake Mead was above seven, 1075. Okay. 
at or below 1075 and at or above 1050. So that 50 or 25 foot range between 1050 and 1075, Arizona would cut 320,000 acre feet of water use. Nevada would cut 13,000 acre feet of uh, water use. Nevada only gets 0.3 million acre feet per year, 300,000 acre feet. Um, so that's why they're so much smaller than Arizona. Right. Um, Arizona, I think, gets like 2.9 or 2.8 million acre feet, and California gets the rest, which I think is like 4.4 million acre feet. That's how they divided their seven and a half million acre feet. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, but with the DCP in place, that increased the amount of cuts taken by each of these states, and California's in the game now. Okay. Now, California doesn't technically take any uh, cuts to their water use until elevation 1045. Uh, but they're now contributing um, uh, water conservation water to uh-huh. this process, right? They weren't in the 07 guidelines at all. Okay. So what that means is that below 1075, um, there's some additions, additional contributions per uh, the DCP um, that below 1075 in elevation in Lake Mead, Arizona will be contributing 512,000 acre feet, right? That they're mm-hmm. they're going to have to cut their water use by that much. Right. And Nevada will contribute 21,000. California doesn't contribute anything again until that 1075 or 1045. Okay. Um, that's when California's contributions kick in. As we talk about these numbers, I have to sort of transpose them in my head. You know, um, thinking about contributions uh, <laughs> is a because when I think about when I think about it, I think of what do they have to cut, mm-hmm. but, the, but I, it's it's also interesting to think look look at it as a contribution, which makes sense. It's uh, you, they're contributing to the uh, yeah to the to the savings account as opposed to t- to taking from. But yeah, I think that's that's neat. Um, what do, now are there guidelines on how they do that, or or are each states um, responsible for figuring out how to how to make their own cuts? Yeah, my knowledge of the lower basin is not as good as my knowledge of the upper basin, but I think it's up to each state to determine mm-hmm. how they want to make those contributions, right? And and that's a good point. You know, I looked at this um, this wording for the first time closely just now, and under in the chart put out in the lower basin drought contingency plan, it's 2007 interim guideline shortages, and then the DCP contributions on top of that. So yes, there's shortages, yes, there are cuts to water use, but like you said, it's contributions to maintaining Lake Mead at these elevations, right? And maintaining whether it's Lake Mead or Lake Powell or any reservoir at certain elevations is important. Maybe we should have said this earlier. Mm -hmm. Uh, One, because you need to be able to have water in there to use it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and two, uh, many, both like uh, uh, Hoover Dam and Glen Canyon Dam produce power. And right. so you can hit uh, you know, an elevation in any reservoir that produces power that's called Deadpool, where you can't produce power anymore because mm-hmm. you're not high, the elevation isn't high enough to run water through the turbines to produce energy. Want to avoid that. Um, yeah, that's... <laughs> Yep. important yeah especially as it you know um hot hot weather you know uh, we, we all know the the electrical issues that can come with that so you know kind of seems like you could quickly get into some compounding issues there as well yeah so that's the lower basin that's what's been in the news the most lately right. i think the national news that shortage declaration right it's tier one yep. uh for arizona and nevada to be making these contributions right mm-hmm. we've been in tier zero um 
I think last year or maybe the year before was the first year that we were in tier zero, which was an addition from the DCP where Arizona contributed 192,000 acre feet, Nevada contributed eight. Um, Those were already, to my understanding, those contributions were mostly accomplished through water conservation measures that had already been been put in place. So there weren't cuts to water users, but this tier one shortage declaration means that there are, you know, reduced deliveries to water users for the first time in this way. Wow. So, so it seems fairly certain that that will happen. Does it happen in August when that declaration comes out? Is that when things, the, those changes start to roll out? They'll roll out in um, the calendar year 2022. Yeah. Okay. Cause it's the projection to my understanding, uh, the projection for January 1 of 2022. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah, it's coming and it gives, you know, it gives water managers, water users time to prepare uh, right. for that as well. To give some space. So, it's not it's not a switch that happens when someone uh when we hit that in August, it's not uh things aren't going to change overnight. No. No. There there'll be plenty of, you know, and what these forecasts do forecast that there is this shortage coming um, for mm-hmm. folks to be able to prepare for it. Right. Yeah. Wow. That, uh, yeah, that's both fascinating and a little bit uh, disconcerting. I can't imagine, you know, feeling that sort of uncertainty. Uh, I mean, we've had such a, a year full of, you know, past, you know, year and a half of things being so normal and so settled, um, you know, having, uh-huh. uh, you know, it's got to be very strange to have this uh, sort of uncertainty pop up right now. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, really, it's got to compound, compound those feelings of uncertainty everyone's been feeling for a long time. Yeah. yeah. And that's, you know, this is we've been talking about the lower basin. And I think that in some ways, there's um, more uncertainty for the upper basin, um, Mm -hmm. because we don't have this kind of chart to follow in the DCP. Um, So like I mentioned earlier, the upper basin, right, has to deliver um, 70, well, it's actually more than 75 million, it's 8.23 million acre feet, because the upper basin contributes in part to the Mexico to Mexico's um, allocation of 1.5 million acre feet. So the upper basin, you know, needs to deliver this water to the lower basin to fulfill compact compact obligations. Mm -hmm. And if that doesn't happen, um, what can happen is called a compact call, where the lower basin would call on its water from the upper basin, uh, which is basically what the upper basin DCP is trying to avoid, right? Or, Or it's taking steps to try to avoid that. Um, so we don't have a hard chart like this one for um, the lower basin in the DC, in the uh, lower basin DCP, um, but the upper basin. What they're starting to do right now, their their operations are based on like Powell's elevation, and mm-hmm. I believe that target elevation is to keep Lake Powell above thirty five twenty five, so that it can continue to produce power. I think right now we're at about thirty. 550 something, 57 maybe, if I remember correctly. I just looked at it yesterday. Um, and right now, and like Powell's run on a water year, which starts September, uh, October 1st and runs okay. through September 30th. Um, so when, let's see if I can get this right. I might not get this fully correct. When Lake Powell is forecast in those 24 month studies mm-hmm. at any point to be below elevation 3525, the upper basin states will start working on a drought operations, drought response operations agreement 
Droa, D-R-O-A. Mm-hmm. Um, so they've started doing that now uh, because Powell is forecast to go. I think they actually started before that. Officially, it was forecast to go below 35.25. Um, it was like 35.25.57 or something. And they started okay. these discussions about a month ago. So the upper basin states are working on what is their response to uh, enable Powell to stay above 3525, this target elevation. Right. And they're working that out now. They're they're having those discussions. And that will involve uh, how do how does the upper basin release water from um, reservoirs that are further upstream? So okay. Flaming Gorge, Nav- Flaming Gorge is on the border of um, uh, Utah and Wyoming. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Aspinall unit in Western Colorado and Navajo Dam in uh, New Mexico. I think those are the principal uh, reservoirs. So how do we move water from those to Lake Powell to keep that elevation high enough to produce power to meet our obligations, et cetera. So those are being worked out now. And there's a contingency too in that, that um, if there's an emergency situation, the Secretary of the Interior can step in and direct actions uh, to take place within the basin to keep Powell above 3525. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is, yeah, this is very, I was talking to a friend about this the other day. And, you know, just when I think I understand the interim guidelines in DCP, then I have to go back and read it all over again. So it's very complicated. <laughs> right. I feel like, uh, I'm not gonna lie. I feel like I lost it a little bit there. I think yeah. <laughs> uh, I think I I was doing well up until that point, but I think I hit a uh, some sort of uh, some sort of processor overload in my brain. I kind of went, oh wait a minute, I can't, I can't get there. So so twenty five thirty five or twenty five thirty thirty five twenty five thirty five twenty five mm-hmm. is the level that is a another sort of trigger point right Mm -hmm. uh at this point the focus is on not hitting that trigger point right Mm -hmm. um yeah because that trigger point is extra bad yeah it it gets close to the elevation at which lake powell can't produce power anymore Ah, glen canyon can't can't produce power anymore yeah from a water nerd perspective, I was very confused when that movie came out because I'm not a comic book person. Yeah. And I was like, why are they naming a comic book hero after a technical elevation in a reservoir? I don't understand. Right. <laughs> yeah, this guy, I think this I guy saw is... the first one. I think it was very funny. Yeah. But I'm not good at remembering those. Right. Yeah, no, this is this is this this superhero stops hydropower. <laughs> Like that's his special <laughs> yeah, that's his, that's his plan. Maybe yep. his name should be avoiding Deadpool or like Deadpool mitigation or something like that. Right. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's great. Okay, so we're we're working on doing on doing that, and we're kind of just waiting to see. I mean, it it it, it seems almost like a you know a, a a foregone conclusion that we're going. I mean, barring you know incredible rains over the next two months, we're going to hit that we're going to have to start making those changes when, when we hit it in August, when that report comes out. Um, so yeah, what is, um, where do we kind of go from there? I mean, what is, um, you know, do we, I think part of, it seems like a little bit of a wait and see, right? We have to see how these, uh, these guidelines play out, what they (laughs) do to mitigate the, that, that shortage in water and, um, yeah, and how um, palatable these reductions or these reductions in use or uh, contributions into savings um, 
are for the people who live in these states, right? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, so another piece of the uh, upper basin DCP, right, we talked about kind of what what's the um, sort of emergency response almost, right, to like yeah. when Powell is forecast to hit 3525. But another piece of the upper basin drought contingency plan was the creation of a a pool or an account of 500,000 acre feet in like Powell for what's called demand management. Mm -hmm. So this is a way to address the issue of a shrinking water supply, right? If we've got an 8 million acre foot river this year ish, or, you know, maybe we can only rely on an 11 or 12 million acre foot river, maybe even not that much. How right. do we learn to live with less, right? This goes back to the yeah. question that we've talked about through this whole series of how much water is there and how do we, you know, quote unquote, best use it. Right. So something that, um, so, so the um, demand management is part of one of the, that kind of suite of solutions, right? And we, we at TU support demand management. We've participated in a bunch of, um, and developed a bunch of pilot projects for it. Um, and what the the um, upper basin DCP says is that the states will figure out demand management programs. So what okay. does demand management mean? It can look a lot of different ways for different sectors, but the one that we work on the most is voluntary, temporary, and compensated. Those are three important words. I'll come back okay. to them. Reductions in water use. We mostly work in the agricultural sector. Mm -hmm. So what this can look like is, you know, a, f a farmer receives compensation to voluntarily, he, he, she can opt in to participating in this program, um, taking out, let's say they have, you know, I'm going to use probably unrealistic numbers here, but let's say they have 10 acres of alfalfa. Mm -hmm. They can take out of production or fallow for a year, let's say five of those acres, mm -hmm. and they'll be compensated for their water not going on to irrigate those fields, but instead staying in the system. Right. And that water would, you know, per these agreements flow, let's say those um, farmers are in, you know, uh, southwestern Wyoming in the Green River Basin. Uh, those um, that water saved by following their fields would make it into a, uh, you know, the Colorado River Storage Pro Project Act, one of those reservoirs to then make it into Lake Powell to contribute to that 500,000 acre foot pool, right? That gives that cushion to right. maintain power production, maintain compact deliveries to the lower basin. Right. Now that, that makes sense. So it's, it's very different, different ways of yeah, trying to prevent it from getting worse, right? Um, mm -hmm. And having a an even larger impact. Yeah, no, that that makes sense. Yeah, so it's a longer term solution, right? The, these drought response operations agreements, um, potential, you know, for the Secretary of Interior to step in and declare emergency operations, right? Those are more immediate responses to, mm -hmm. you know, uh, an issue of low water supply. But demand management is one way to think about the long term. How do we set up a flexible system um, that uh, and I think the flexibility in that is key, right? That water users have that increased flexibility in how they use their water, which can be using less or even no water uh, on a temporary basis, right? And again, right. that these are those three key words, right? It's voluntary. Nobody's going to be forced to participate in this. It's, you know, if you want to, you can participate. Mm -hmm. Um it's temporary, it's not, you know, and temporary could be on the order of years, but it's not, you're not permanently giving up your water right by right. doing this. Um, and it's compensated, you know, you're going to be compensated for 
uh, not having, uh, for letting that water that you have a right to go to a different use, right? right? Water that would otherwise, you know, be used to grow alfalfa that you could use to feed your cattle or that you could sell. Right. So again, that, that increased flexibility from this temporary voluntary compensated system. You know, I'd, I'd always looked at that sort of demand management as a nice way to talk about cuts, right? But I, I think it's, it is actually, you know, kind of taking care of that savings account, right? But it also seems like there've got to be some other benefits from that as well, right? Like, so it, it helps, it helps that things not be worse, but what else does it do that, uh, yeah, what are sort of the hidden things? Because I think this is, whenever we've talked about any of these things, it seems like there's no end to the layers of the onion we can peel back. So Yeah, no yeah. end. It's the infinite onion. Um, <laughs> yeah, so so on the system level, right, it's going to that that accountant like Powell to prop up the, the elevation and allow for us to meet all our obligations, hydropower, et cetera. Um, you know, on the ground for individual producers, it means that, as I said, there's um, increased flexibility for mm-hmm. farmers, right? They can choose how and when to use their water in different ways, um, whether that's temporary following a field for half of a season or all of a season um, or for longer. Um, and then also it contributes to keeping a what I think we all want to see, and I certainly do, um, continuing to have a thriving agricultural economy and way of life in the West, right? One of the biggest fears in the West um, is the fear of buy and dry, right? Where municipalities buy up farmland, buy up water rights, uh, and put those, that water use only to municipalities while they dry up that farmland, right? Uh, which, you know, can cause people to move away from rural areas. It can, uh, it decreases the the agricultural economy, right? But through right. this, um, right, producers being compensated for uh, temporarily following fields or whatever this looks like in practice, it allows those agricultural economies to, to maintain their way of life as well as maintain the economy. And there's, there's studies on the economic effects of demand management, and I'm sure that folks would, you know, I'm sure there are folks who would disagree with my assessment of it, but it right. keeps those farmlands in production um, and allows that agricultural way of life, which is such a part of the American West, to continue. Right. That's interesting to see it not just as a protection of of water, which is sort of transient in nature, right? Especially when we're talking about use water use, right? Uh, it, it's always moving, right? It, it, it flows, right? So it's not like you, it's not something you get and you hold on to. It's not a static resource, but not, it's not just that. It's also the protection, like you're saying, of, of this way of life that, um, you know, I think the, those in the West uh, that have lived it love and deeply value it. But I think for even those of us that uh, live in the East, um, it's an important part of our understanding of who we are as well. Like, even if we've never been out to the West, there's something kind of in the core of our country that uh, holds on to that sort of agricultural Western idea. Um, it really speaks to the way... Uh, to the way we do a lot of things, right? I think that idea, um, be it, you know, be it cowboys, be it, you know, uh, the, the gold rushes, you know, do any of that stuff like really kind of, kind of talks to us on a, on a core level of, you know, kind of what it is to be American. Yeah. And I think too, you know, there, there is that cultural importance of, 
uh, of the ranching, the farming economy of the West. And I think what demand management also does, or, you know, these kinds of creative solutions and collaborative solutions that we're talking about, um, is that, um, or at least I hope that this allows for a greater inclusion of different voices in the conversation. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the reason that I haven't to this point talked about Native American water rights in this episode so far is that, you know, through the history of the law of the river, um, really until the DCP, uh, Native American tribes were not at the table, right, for any right. of these decisions. And we've talked in the past about how, um, you know, how, how, both settled and unsettled water rights have tribes have uh, rights and claims to a, a large portion of the Colorado River. And we are starting with the DCP starting to see their inclusion. Um, there were a number of lower basin tribes who made the DCP possible. Um, but hopefully through these kind of collaborative agreements through more flexible water use like demand management, those are going to be um, taken in even more creative directions by having additional voices at the table, like having tribes there, yeah. um, as well as, you know, we're going to have different solutions that we haven't even thought of yet, right. by including a greater number of people and hopefully making it more equitable for everybody involved, right? Um, equity yeah. in water rights and water use is um, has been a, unfortunately, long time coming for Native American tribes here in the basin. You know that that does a nice job bringing us, I think, to the our question that uh, that we received. Um, Thanks, John. Yeah. So uh, in in all of our uh, many calls for questions, we we did receive one. So it wasn't an entire entirely a failure on our part. We, we like to stay positive here. To you, um, John Bergeron wrote in and asked us. It's twenty fifty, and a new TU podcast or whatever fancy media is the latest and greatest is being developed. The goal of the podcast is to highlight all the amazing achievements in the Colorado River Basin over the past 30 years, including getting us to a sustainable, resilient, and equitable river system. In your view, what are some of the achievements that the future Rockstar TU staff will be discussing? Great question. Thank you, John. Yeah. Um, so I think first and foremost, to go back to what we were just talking about, is that there is a robust process for negotiations, decision-making that is collaborative truly collaborative and includes all water users, right? Mm -hmm. Tribes are at the table and have an equal voice, right? Um, environmental interests are at the table, water users, states, et cetera. But I think most importantly, we're including those folks who haven't been able to or have been left out of participating in these discussions, these decisions to this point. And, mm -hmm. you know, like I said, we, we you know, at the um, almost the most base level doing this, provides for a greater range of creativity, a greater range of voices to come up with these creative solutions. Um, and it is something that that we have to do, right? Tribes need to, to have a place at the table. They've been here since time immemorial. They're the original water users. We have a lot to learn from uh, our uh, uh, the tribal nations in the basin yeah. about water management, right? And, and they need to be equally at the table. Um, I think yeah. second, that there's a recognition of the hydrological reality, right? That of how much water there is and how best to use it, right? That yeah. there's, um, as we talked about, there's so much uncertainty with climate change. What Are we gonna have another year like this following this one? Are we gonna have five more years like this following right. this one? Or 
are we going to have, uh, you know, floods this winter? We don't, we don't right. know, right? I've heard it called global weirding, <laughs> which sure. like, yes, yeah. the trend is drier and warmer for the West, for the Colorado River Basin. But, um, you know, we could have these big water years in the middle of that, like 2011. 2011 was a, a huge water year. Um, right. You know, I was on Lodore Canyon at 9,000 CFS, which doesn't happen very often. And that was, you know, it's usually running at like, 800 in the summer um so we could have a year like that we just don't know but this recognition of our hydrological reality and what you know that we're actually dealing with a river that has less than the 16 and a half million acre feet that's been allocated um third that we have a um thriving agricultural economy and way of life right whether that's through demand management or some sort of solution or you know, or suite of solutions that we haven't thought of yet, right? What, Mm -hmm. uh, that we do have, you know, we have maintained the rural way of life out here and the agricultural economy um, uh, that has been in place in the West for, you know, for a relatively short amount of time, 150-ish years, um, but that, you know, in places like California provide much of the food that we eat throughout the year, right? It's a food security issue as well. And then to touch back on some of the um, topics that we've we've talked about through the course of this series, you know, we have federal programs like Water Smart, and we have legislation like the Farm Bill that do a really good job of supporting our work. Right? They they do a great job already. They they provide funding and um, a framework for a lot of the programs that we use to benefit you know producers and ecosystems in the West, but continually improving on those in a way that makes them uh, beneficial for for all water users and for the environment in the West. I'd like to be able to say that in 2050. Yeah. Maybe we'll have like holograms as podcasts or something. <laughs> yeah, I mean, as, yeah, you can say it as a hologram. I think that makes perfect sense. Yeah, I, you know, it's hard for me not being super versed in the Colorado River Basin to really answer that. But through throughout the course of the podcast, it seems to me that when we bring more voices to the table and we allow an expansion of the definition of best and the definition of use, that's when the solutions we come up with tend to get better. So for me, I think I'd love to look back uh, in 30 years and look at uh, how we've been able to get, yeah, to, to bring together these voices to find a a larger, more robust definition of those two words and to be able to put that into action as well. I think, um, you know, if, if the history we've been talking about so far uh, shows us, uh, you know, holds up in the future, I think that um, that's our best chance to come up with a, a solid set of systems that that are that will serve us well, you know, for the future. Yeah, agreed. Yeah, it's a lot of work to do, but um, you know, it's it's necessary. And uh, given the hydrology we have this year and the smoky skies outside my window, um, you know, it's uh, it's pretty motivating to get in there and uh, and be working on this stuff. Yeah. Well, thanks for uh, thanks for the question. <laughs> I think uh, yeah, no, it's been it's been great talking with with you, Sarah, uh, and I feel like I've talked you know to a few of you out there as well. Um, I feel like I have a significantly better understanding of water in the West than I did when I when I started it. I feel like I'm also, um, I've also just sort of cracked the the cover too. Um, so it's it's one of those. I, I've learned quite a bit, but I've also learned how much I don't know. Um, so yeah, it's been great talking with you, and I hope you I hope all of you have enjoyed it. 
yeah, it's been great to to be on here to be able to put my flex my teaching skills again. And um, yes, I think the infinite onion is an appropriate metaphor for a water yeah. use. The more I know, the more I realize there is to know. Uh, yeah. And this is what I do all day, every day. So <laughs> that's great. Well, um, yeah, I think that that wraps it up for for our uh, our 101, barring any uh, any additional uh, stuff down the road. But uh, so yeah, again, thanks for listening and. Um, you know, like always, take a look at uh, the great companion pieces that uh, Sarah's pulled together at uh, tu.org slash ww101. Again, that's tu.org slash ww101. Or shoot us an email with any questions uh, that we can answer. Um, you know, I, I can understand if you were afraid to send them in and we you didn't want your name read on, uh, you know, on, on the podcast. But we can, uh, you know, we can answer individual questions uh, at... Uh, www101 at tu.org so uh, feel free to send them our way.